morning again, fellow students. Uh, I guess we'll begin with a comment. If anybody needs another outline, we have a few extras. If you didn't get one yesterday, they're up on the platform here. You might come get one. Uh, Chuck, you might see if anybody else needs the next box. Somebody also asked me yesterday after class why we were in the outline, and you know my comment is we're in the introduction. So, true to form, we'll probably stay in the introduction most of the week. Uh, secondly, I would like for you to remember that this class is essentially an overview. Uh, the purp one purpose in the outline is to encourage all of us when we go home to take a look at the, the order in which the prophecies have been given to you and to me. Uh, again, you know, we can't overemphasize, I think Brother Randy started early this morning with the thought as to the necessity to study God's Word. And, you know, I would suggest to you that that's a never-ending task. And all you learn is the more you learn, the less you knew. And the less you, the more you still have to learn. And you know, whether you're 15 or 20 or 30 or 60, that's still the same problem. You, there is a constant requirement that we study the word of the Lord, God's revelation to us. And it's in great depth that he has presented his word to us. Uh, it's from the outline, again, uh, a reference to uh, the design of the prophetic word. Uh, we want to begin this morning, uh, and we're coming back so you don't lose track of where we are. The, the ultimate that we will ar arrive at is that Daniel's fourth beast and the apocalyptic beast great harlot of the revelation is this combination of entities who will in the last manifestation or the last standing that we will see them again represented by Daniel's image standing upon his feet will be those that group come together of which so far I think we've established what's happening in the kingdoms of men of bringing this whole conglomeration of nations together. Okay? And, and we, we will continue that. Brother Wayne, after class yesterday, uh, reported that yesterday morning, and it happens to be in the paper today, that the Vatican and Poland have restored relations. It, it goes on to say that this is the, uh, uh, the move comes two months after Poland's parliament granted recognition to the Roman Catholic Church. For the previous 15 years, the Holy See and the Communist government had had permanent working contracts. The Vatican and Poland restored full diplomatic ties on Monday. The first such relations between the Holy See and one of the Warsaw Pact countries that repressed religion after World War II. So again, you know, brothers, sisters, fellow students, every day we see something that, that shows us the 
movement of the ultimate of God's plan and purpose in the earth. Now, in conjunction with that, uh, and this ties in very well with Brother Horton's earlier thoughts, got the wrong book. I guess I left it somewhere. But anyway, there is a, a book out which is entitled Magog 1982 Cancelled. Magog 1982 Cancelled. Now, you know that was written by a uh, born-again Christian, I suppose. And he says a lot of things that are true. But he also says a lot of things that are not true. The first thing is nothing in God's plan is going to be cancelled. And that's where we want to begin this morning. Uh, and we're going to begin with it in a, in a thought in Jeremiah, uh, from which we will get into a couple of other discussions regarding times and numbers. But this is, I think, an interesting... Uh, Jeremiah 5.22 reads, Fear you not me, saith the Lord, will you not tremble at my presence, which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree that he cannot pass it. And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet they cannot prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over it. You know, that's a really a beautiful symbol that tells us in simple st words that everything is in the hands of Yahweh. The sand, obviously, a clear reference to the seed of Abraham. You know, we think of the sand of the sea, and I want you to just get this mental picture because we, we need to think in terms of looking at what we're looking, you know, seeing and seeing and hearing and hearing, so we really perceive what is being said. But here we have the sand is a bound for the sea, and it's a perpetual decree. It cannot be moved. The sea, representative of the sea of nations, or the sea of humanity. And we're going to talk later this week about when there comes a time when there's no more sea. Well, here we have the sand, and just think about it in the natural. The, sound, the sand bounds the sea. And it says, though the waves roar and the, the wind blows, nothing can change what the, what the sand has established. That's the seed of Abraham. That's you and I, hopefully, okay? Now, I want you to think immediately, and what comes to your mind, it has to come to your mind, is uh, Christ, you remember when he was on the sea? He, he calmed the sea and the wind, and, they, and the people who saw that, uh, it's recorded twice in Matthew and in John, probably different events for me. The wind blows my Bible. i got to get back to where I was. Uh, in, in Matthew 8, 27, you remember they said after that, you know, what a strange man this is. Even the wind and waves, or the wind and sea, obey him. What's that tell us? It's not a simple little story at storm at sea. It's telling us that all the sea of humanity, all winds that blow, are under his control. Okay? The John 5, the sign 5 from John 6 reveals the same thing. We won't go into it. But it's a very significant thing here is that the sea is bounded by the sand. So therefore, the earth, the world, is bounded by Abraham's seed. Okay? Now, we want to 
back to our uh, number three on the foreshadowing is the battle of the kings in which Abraham and Lot were participants in, Gen- in Genesis 14. I want you to remember Amos 3.7 which we talked about the first day says that the Lord will do nothing except he reveal it to his servants the prophets. If you look in, in Genesis 20 and I'd like to look there for a minute anyway Whole uh, whole 14 it refers to Abraham as a prophet. This is the story of, of uh, Abimelech and I think it's the 17th verse. My Bible's kind of torn, but it says, This man, now this man. says this man is a prophet and he shall pray for thee and thou shalt live if thou restore his wife right so we just want to call your attention Abraham is identified as a prophet so with that idea look at the 14th chapter and we want to we want to read from this now the point in chapter 14 uh, which is the battle of the kings and we would suggest to you that this is a revelation to Abraham of the same events that we're going to see shown to him some 2,000 years before the advent of Christ. He is going to enact, reenact, or enact a latter-day prophecy. It becomes very important to us because we're we're trying to identify entities. You know, who are they? Well, we... we don't, we don't have time to read all of it, but let's just look at it. It says, And it came to pass in the days of Amraphel, king of Shinar, Ariot, king of Elisar, Kedalamir, king of Elam, and Tyler, king of nations, that these made war with Bera, king of Sodom, and with Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Admar, and Shemeba, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, which is Zoar. And these were joined together in the vale of Siddim, which is the salt sea. Twelve years they served Catalamia, and in the thirteenth year they rebelled. And in the fourteenth year came Catalamia and the kings that were with him, and smote the Rephraims and Ashtaroth, Conam, and the Zuzims and Ham, and the Enims and Sheva, Karatham. And the Horites in the Mount Seir until El Paran, which is by the wilderness. And they returned and came to end Mishpat, which is Kadesh, and smote all the country of the Amalekites, and also the Amorites that dwelt in Hazan Tamar. And there went out the king of Sodom, and the king of Gomorrah, and the king of Admar, and the king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, the same as Zoar, and they joined together with them in the vale of Shittim. And with Ketelamir, king of Elam, and with Tidal, king of nations, and Amraphel, king of Shinar, and Ariot, king of Elisar, four kings with five. And the vale of Siddim was full of slime pits, and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled and fell there. And they that remained fled to the mountain, and they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their vittles and went their way. And they took Lot, Abraham's brother's son, who dwelt in Sodom, and his goods, and departed. And there came one that escaped and told Abraham the Hebrew, 
Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre, the Amorite, of, of Mamre, the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, and brother of Anah. And these were confederate with Abraham. And when Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them to Dan. And he divided against them, he and his servants, by night, and smote them and pursued them unto Hobath, which is on the left of Damascus. And he brought back all the goods, and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods, and the women also that were with him. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him after his return from the slaughter of Ketalamia, and the kings that were with him in the valley of Shava, which is the king's dale. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine, and he was priest of the Most High God. And he said, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be the Most High God, which hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Enough. All right, now, I don't think any of us have any question in our mind that when, when Melchizedek and Abram broke bread, had wine, that that was a foreshadowing of the keeping of the memorial feast or the celebration of the king's feast in Jerusalem in a latter day, okay? I don't think anybody has any question that that's it. Now, another interesting thing is that Lot is referred to here as Abram's brother. He wasn't his brother. He was his nephew. So, again, we have a clue. Keeping in mind that here's Abram a prophet. He's being given, he is enacting an event in which he is going out to save his brother Lot. All right, now... As his brother, we have a, a representation to us of Abraham represented as spiritual Israel, Lot represented as a natural Jew, Ketalamia and the king of title, king of nations, a representative of the northern confederacy, you know, having their battle, you know, with the multitudinous Christ, the rainbow angel, the kings of the south, at least... I'll use the word which the scripture uses, confederate with Abram, telling us that, you know, this group, which we'll talk about later in the week, have to be a part of this enactment. Now, I want the purpose in this is to show you the way God teaches. He taught Abraham, he teaches you and I. We can't take one event and prove anything. We can't take one verse and prove anything. But we can take a composite of verses and prove a whole lot. Okay? Now, we'll talk about 318 servants because I think it's germane to the, to the discussion. And, you know, and again, here we immediately get into numbers, and numbers become interesting. Already we've talked about a number 12, a number 13, and a number 14. I'll leave those to you as to putting the time periods within this framework. But I think it is significant, and I think it's important. But on 318, it says he had 318 trained servants brought up in his own house. All right, 318 is a puzzling number. But also, if you'll recall in John gospel, the eighth sign, we have a puzzling number. We have a number 153. Well, it just so happens if you take 153 two times plus six and 
you have a composite of 318. Now, here's what I would suggest it probably indicates. 153 great fish of the eighth sign of John is the number of the sons of deity in Hebrew. It's two because they're Jews and Gentiles. Six, the origin of man tells us it comes from the human family. Okay, so 153 plus 6 times 2, we have the 318. These men, and it's a depiction, an Old Testament depiction of the rainbow angel, the multitude of Christ, if you wish. Okay, now, if you want to accept it, fine. If you don't, fine too. But I, the point, regardless of whether you accept that one, you've got to appreciate that constantly in God's Word, we, is revealed to us not only our day, but latter days. Do you remember Christ says that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced and was glad? I think Brother Jim or somebody already referred to that. Well, I would suggest to you that Abraham saw at least two days referring to Christ. He, he saw the day of his sacrifice and he enacted it. Remember, it was a reenactment. He took his son, Isaac, journeyed three days to Mount Moriah and performed a symbolic offering. The ram was caught in the thicket. He called the name of the place Yahweh Yara. The Lord will provide. He saw that day. I would suggest to you in, in Genesis 14, he saw the second advent. Not necessarily the advent, but the work of the rainbow angel. Okay? He, he saw the countries that would be involved. Now look, let's don't be ridiculous. There's no way that this world was that. You know, you know, look, Canada didn't even have a constitution. You know? So, you know, obviously the Western world was not part of it, but we had we had the South, we had the North, we had Title King of Nations, and we had Catalonia. We had the same forces that we're gonna see, you know, predicted here. Uh, in the days in which you and I live. Uh, back on that chart uh, in the foreshadowing, uh, I guess there's two points I want to make, and the w reason I didn't make the one yesterday on the dove uh, was because I wanted to go through this first. Now, remember we said three things about the dove that Noah sent out of the ark. Uh, you remember what the three were? The first time, he found no rest for his feet. So he came back. The second time, he brought an olive branch. The third time, he was gone forever. Again, I would suggest to you, and this is very, you know, I'm only doing this because of, uh, I think I got some super informed people here, and I want them to, you know, appreciate some things that I think are important. But if you look in Luke 13, and you don't have to turn this up, I guess, if you don't want to. This is uh, the woman who hid three... We took 11, it is, uh, that's uh, 13, uh, 13, 21, and well, we should read 20. It, it, it says, whereunto shall I liken the kingdom of God? And notice it says the kingdom of God, okay? And that's the first thing we want to, we will talk about. It is like 11, 
which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. Well, to understand that, the first thing you have to understand is that leaven, the, the first leaven, if you look it up in Strong's Concordance, is sin. So it is like sin, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till the whole was leavened. The second leaven does not mean sin. It means made glorious. Okay? They're different words. So now read it and we understand it. A woman took leaven, hid it in three measures of meal, took sin, hid it in three measures of meal, till all was made glorious. Now all we got to deal is with the three. Well, I think the three, the clue comes with the dove. Remember, we've already talked about the dove in Genesis, in uh, Isaiah 60. The dove was is, will be, the multitudinous Christ. Who are these that fly as doves to the windows? Okay? Now, and, and there's so much symbology here that, you know, I want you to really think about it, but I'll, I'll give you a, a, the hard one first. You know, for six days, there is no rest for the sole of the feet of the dove, is it? Any of us have any rest for the sole of our feet? No. But when day seven appears, and that's shortly to appear as we approach the end of this age, there will be the reign of peace. Okay? Right? And the right. But it is a complete cycle. And again, it's depicted in with Noah as seven. When the dove comes back and then goes out I would suggest to you, and we'll come back to it later anyway, 1 Corinthians 15, which says, Of the time then cometh the end, when Christ will deliver up the throne to the Father, and God will be all and in all. Day 8. All right, so it tells us a lot of things that we need to know. Number one is, how many people were on the ark? It was eight people, right? But it was really one plus seven. It was Noah, and I think we all recognize Noah as a type of Christ. Right? The one who... In fact, he built the ark, and Christ is our ark. So we, we immediately know that Noah, so it's Christ plus seven. The work of redemption is not completed until the end of the seventh day. So we have, again, the, the, the thought rolls through many times with the number eight, you know, circumcision on the eighth day, uh, indicating the final cutting off of sin's flesh on day eight. Uh, eight people in the ark, really one plus seven. All right. But it's an important principle to establish, and therefore we, we can, and, and we'll come to this when we, as we go through current events, because we're living so in, in such an important time, because we are about to see the end of day six and the beginning of day seven. Okay, the dove traveling back and forth three times. Now, there is many other ex exhortation lessons in that. You know, the first one is that to be aware that we are not of this world. We find no rest for the sole of our feet. Uh, I think Randy again, when he mentioned uh, Moses this morning, very fitting, you know, he didn't want to be associated with the people of Egypt. Okay, now, I guess we're going in reverse order on that list. Genesis 1, the 
creation. And, you know, we all are very, I guess there's two things that I think we need to think about in prophecy in, in Genesis 1, which I will pass through very quickly. And the first one is like God says, let there be light. And it says, and there was light. Christ, when he appeared, said he was the light of the world. So, again, uh, uh, David, in writing in the psalm, says, The entrance of thy word giveth light. So, again, we associate light with understanding. And it's a very, it, we see clearly, it's a prophetic, it's a prophetic utterance, let there be light. Because there's not going to be true light until the time we read of in Revelation 21 and Isaiah 60 that says there will be no sun, no moon, because the Lamb is the light thereof. That's the time of God all in and all. The other one comes from 126 where the, where the Elohim said, let us make man in our image. Well, that verse, brothers and sisters and fellow students, has a lot more import than fashioning Adam out of the dust of the earth. What they were really saying was looking forward to the eighth day when man, all men, would be truly made in the image of the Elohim. So it's a, pro it's a prophecy as well as a natural historical event. Okay. We want to... The point in this is to get out get our minds attuned. Now, if you look in foreshadowing and foretold, you notice the, uh, thirdly, we have listed the conflict and the reuniting of Jacob and Esau. We'd like to add to that Genesis 17, the promise made to Abraham by God concerning Ishmael. And this becomes important when we begin to look at the future of the, of the Arabs. All right. But just to think, the mosaic bondage and deliverance. Again, keep in mind, we all make a, we take a trip. Jacob took it. He, it was from Luz to Bethel. I think the Israelites made one from Marah to Elam. Okay? It's easier for us to remember we go from Egypt to the Holy Land. But that's a trick we all have to make. And all these are foreshadowing events. Uh, when we think of Jacob and, and Esau, we're going to read that, hopefully, before we get through. But I want you to keep in mind that as we look at these developments, it's all been foretold. All we have to do is go back and look at the origin and the basis, and we can, we can get the picture, I think. Okay. I think on here we are, and, and Brother Ned called to my attention, and he's right on this. I had written him hope. He wants to make sure, and we should be all understand that we're talking a, about a, a lineage of popes that began sometime in the period of Constantine and right down through John Paul II. We call it the papacy, and that's probably, I had copied Vatican and Pope from, I think, Milestones, just to show you present-day events for what they're doing. And keep in mind where they are and what they're doing. Now, we want to read a bit from Johann Ramati, who, remember, we referred to it yesterday, and I tell you, I kind of, in a way, hate to put you through this. But I think it's important. It's entitled the Mas Moscow and Damascus. 
And the reason for this is, remember today in the Brotherhood, there's a lot of quibbling about what happens here. And it was also, by the way, a lot of quibbling about these two and these three until the last six, eight months. And that's become so plain uh, that you, 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 there's nothing to quibble about. You know, look, I can remember hearing there's no way Russia and the Vatican are going to get together. But communism and Catholicism are totally cross-purpose. But remember, our pioneer brethren said they would. More importantly, as the scripture said they would. But, you know, we can't understand the scripture anyway. But we have an interpreter that helps us understand it. We believe him. We threw him out. Well, I'll tell you, now in the last six, eight months, look what's happened. And I don't think it's a soul sitting here that doesn't see these three aligning. If you don't, you don't read the newspaper. I know you got a television. So watch the FNN program. And you'll see it because it's constant. In Austin paper yesterday, Richmond never puts it on the front page. You got to read, you know, six pages in because the front page is, you know, got some some nonsense. But you, you have to read to see what's happening. But you can, if you're familiar with your, the Bible, you don't need to read. You can understand it from the scriptures, particularly if you take a book like the Exposition of Daniel or El Procedure or Eureka. You don't have any problems. Okay. Soviet Union. Relations between the Soviet Union and Syria are governed by strategic interests of the two states. The ideological rad radicalism of the Baath regime in Syria, and that's the group that President Assad aligns himself with, has helped at times to cement these ties. Both for both sides, ideology has been has become subsidiary to military and political considerations. Since Mikhail Gorbachev interests do not coincide fully, but they overlap sufficiently to assure continued cooperation despite occasional differences on tactical issues. But to be acceptable to Moscow, such a division would have to leave at the very least Syria, Iraq, Iran under its control. The West has never proposed such a deal. hard to skip in here because it's too uh, he's already consolidated it it's hard for me to consolidate a consolidation he says in fact the USSR has not only been urging Syria to abstain from war but has taken practical steps to assure the honoring of its wishes this thing however is in the aim of these maneuvers forcing Israel into frontiers eliminating its strategic value to NATO in general and Turkey in particular frontiers that will make it easier for Syria to attack Israel successfully when this does not interfere with Soviet plans to Asia Minor. Syria's strategic goals are achieving a plan, a position, a leading position in the Arab world and in implementing the greater Syria plan, which would make it a dominant power in Lebanon and Palestine. Whether or not Jordan is included in Palestine for greater Syria purposes is a question Assad can afford to be flexible about. A tacit agreement may have been reached between Syria and Jordan in late 85-86, under which Jordan accepted the principle of Syrian autonomy in Lebanon and Western Palestine in return for a 
Assyrian guarantee not to interfere in Jordanian affairs. Hope you all follow this. But it is also possible that King Hussein has been cooperating with Syria on matters relating to the Middle East process and the weakening of U.S. influence in the Middle East without receiving such a guarantee for good reasons of his own. The alliance with USSR is natural for Syria. The United States built its Middle East policies on the rickety tripod of Tehran, Rada, that's uh, Saudi Arabia, and Cairo axis. And though the Tehran leg of the tripod crumbled with the advent of the fundamentalist Khomeini regime in Iran, it continues to regard Saudi Arabia and Egypt as friendly states. Now remember that. The United States continues to accept Saudi Arabia and Egypt as friends. Uh, I want to maybe make one other comment so nobody gets lost. I'm kind of already lost. But what Russia wants to gain out of this is very simple. And remember, we talked about it briefly yesterday. He goes through all of this. They want by that port they built in Tartus, they want to bring about the fall of Turkey. That's their whole interest. I shouldn't say their whole interest. That's a primary interest. And remember, that goes back to the days of Peter the Great, you know, 16th century. They wanted a, a warm port, which takes them into the Mediterranean and control of the, the Asia, Europe, What does Syria want? Syria wants enough some weaponry that they can attack Israel and probably also Jordan and Saudi Arabia. Look, we, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't just dislike Israel. They dislike everybody but themselves. But look at what they've done in Lebanon. Okay? And that's an attempt for what they call the greater Syrian plan. So here you got two people, two countries, both have national interests, both have a interest in helping each other for the benefits that it would that they would gain themselves. That's all it amounts to. He says the key to understanding the Soviet interest is a, in a powerful radical Syria is Turkey. Turkey is crucial to NATO, but the West has done enough to show up the weakness created by this inefficient economy, its obvious military its obsolescent military equipment, and its differences with Greece. Faced by superior Warsaw Pact forces in the Balkans and Transcaucasia, Turkey finds its NATO commitments difficult, however. From the Soviets' viewpoint, Turkey's long southern frontier with Syria is the straw that may break the camel's back. Now remember, this isn't written by uh, Brother Thomas or Graham Pierce or me. You know, this is written by an international correspondent who I would consider to be a leader in international politics. And he's analyzing with, you know, what's going on. Turkey's relations with Syria have never been good. And he goes on to tell why. Were it not for the existence of military power of Israel, which diverts Syrian attention to Palestine, Turkey's strategic situation would be hopeless, hopeless already. USSR is well aware of this and has framed its policy toward the Arab-Israeli conflict and Syria accordingly. It's subject to be dealt with in more detail later. As far as back as 1961, when Syria regained its freedom of political action after the collapse of the Union with Nasser in Egypt, the USSR was its main foreign problem. 
The friendship survived its most severe test in 1967 when large quantities of Egypt's and Syria's Soviet equipment were destroyed by the Israeli-operated Western equipment and morale in Damascus reached an all-time low. The Kremlin reacted by rearming Syria with some of its best available weapons systems. We'll talk about that later, I hope. Syria's ties with the USSR only became closer throughout the 1967 to 1988 period. By the way, this was written about two months ago. Western attempts to lose Syria away from Moscow failed, failed miserably. Even Henry Kissinger, who rewarded Syria for its October 73 attack on Israel by badgering the Israelis, whose forces were within 20 miles of Damascus and seceding the town of Kunitra, was unable to obtain any Syrian quid pro quo. Periodic hints have selected American sources from the United States. The current dollar value of Syria's arms imports in 74 to 78 was 3.3 billion, of which 2.91 was spent in the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. In 1978 to 82, it rocketed to 9.8 billion, which 8.6 came from the USSR and Czechoslovakia. By the end of 82, the T-72 the T tank had become an important component of Syria's armored forces, and the Syrian Air Force had been substantially strengthened by the addition of MiG-23s, SU-20s, MiG-25 aircraft to the 200 MiG-21 is MiG-21s that had formed its backbone of the previous de decade. Today, thousands of Soviet military advisors are stationed in Syria and are, make a, and are making a major contribution to the effectiveness of the Syrian armed forces that still depend entirely on Soviet equipment. He gives up comment here, which I think is kind of interesting. 1967, Syria's tanks numbered 400. Today they number 4,050. Aircraft from 25 to 478. He goes on, he says that it has been totally upgraded. Now, in conjunction with that, I want to jump to something and then we'll come back. If you've ever heard of what they call R RPVs. RPVs is a remotely piloted vehicle. Alright? And guess who is the world leader in RPVs? State of Israel. And this is why, you know, we're dropping into consideration of Israel in this aspect. But here's what's said. It says Israel has made extensive use of by the way, this is from the US News of July 10th, 89, so that's a couple of weeks old. It's called America's Best and Worst Weapons. And the interesting thing is, is guess who the U.S. is buying from? They buy from Israel. So really, this report is on the best U.S. equipment, and we probably don't know the tip of the iceberg in this area. But here's what he says. Israel has made extensive use of drones or remotely piloted vehicles equipped 
with TV cameras to gather intelligence. In 1982, Israel's Israeli RPVs, not much larger than model airplanes, played a critical role in locating Syrian anti-aircraft missiles, batteries in Lebanon's Bekaa Valley. Using the information, Israeli fighter planes were able to destroy the sites with the loss of only one aircraft. This, by the way, I happened to be uh, in Israel in 1981, I think, and heard Mr. Begin speak. They had developed this, and Begin told this group of Jewish uh, Ephraimites, I should call them, okay, uh, that they had developed some very outstanding equipment, very capable equipment, and he says, we plan to share it with our friends, and we just find out who our friends are. Was at that moment, you know, the U.S. was, you know, just dying to get hold of this equipment, and Israel was withholding it. Uh, he, he now, this, he says, the Navy, meanwhile, has purchased nine considerably less expensive Israeli R RPVs Israel, from Israel's aircraft industries, which has had drones on the market for a decade, and is among bidders for a new Army-Navy Marine contract for a short-range RPV to replace the equipment. You know, I don't want any of us to ever underestimate the power of the state of Israel. I would even suggest to you, and I don't have any proof of this, but my guess is, and I'm not going to have time to read some of it, but the available, i got to get to some of it, the, the Russians, This is the March 13, 1989, uh, U.S. News. It's called the Soviet, Soviet Military Power. How serious a threat. Well, you know, we've been hearing all about, uh, and I'm going to summarize this so you don't have to listen to the reading. If any of you like to read it, you may. But the point is made here, uh, there is no change in, in where Russia is headed. What they have found out is quite simple. Western technology has done much to alter their capabilities militarily. And guess where that Western technology has come from? Come from Israel. Now, you know, that's the hand of the Lord, brothers and sisters. You know, Israel is not only armed to the teeth, as one of these articles referred to, they have missiles capable of reaching any, any major city in the Soviet Union. Uh, they are supplying the United States and Great Britain with less to Britain because they don't, they're not sure about Britain yet, to quote Mr. Begin, but I think they are now sure of the U.S. since the days of Ronald Reagan, and they're supplying the technology and the weaponry for the United States to fortify itself. Russia is in a position that they have to change. Uh, this article points out that the Russian might is no longer capable of handling the Western technology. So, but to think about that might, it begins here. At age of seven, they, they take all children and, call, and put them in a training to be future soldiers with a title called Low Octoberist, whatever that means. They, uh, by, by, uh, at seven, it says, boys and girls become Little Octoberists, members of the youngest communist-sponsored scouts. 
From 9 to 14, they are pioneers whose summer camps culminate in mock military exercises. At 14, they enter Commissar, the young communist league, and attend young eagle camps that teach skills ranging from map reading to grenade throwing to field stripping of rifles. And it goes on, you know, they also classify them according to uh, intellectual capability and physical capability. If you're short, five, six, you get to drive a tank. Okay, it's all in here, you know. So it, it causes Mr. Zimmerman, Zuckerman, the editor, to say this. Mikhail Gorbachev's many initiatives are raising hopes that East and West are nearing the end of 45 years of confrontation. confrontation. But what, is, what has the threat from the Soviet Union that caused such fear and deep distrust really diminished? The answer is yes and no. Yes, given the reform-minded Gorbachev. No, given the present reality of Soviet military strength. The Red Army is organized to attack and carry on such scale that it could carry offensive operations on a front of 450 miles from the Alps to Denmark and drive forward 750 miles from Eastern Europe to the English Channel in three to four weeks. A breathtaking military operation that would make, would make the Blitzkrieg campaigns of World War II look like slow motion skirmishes. That's Mr. Zuckerman. He says the Soviet calculation is that NATO politicians would live in hope or confusion until it was too late. All this demands an offensive action strategy of deep operations to achieve the necessary breakthrough of enemy lines. To this end, the Soviets have developed the capacity for the rapid accumulation of enormous forces at the points of contact with the enemy. Soviets have placed great stress on developing the capacity to move major formations of arms and men rapidly from axis to axis to achieve the necessary overwhelming force. They can supplement this frontline capacity with Heliborn, Heliborn, I guess you say, specialized commando forces that can implement deep penetration military actions to take out critical military points, especially command and control centers in the West. The new armaments will exceed their predecessors by several times over in range, by dozens of times over in the destructiveness, and by hundreds of times over in accuracy. Many will employ stealth technologies, making them e even deadlier. Some maximized systems, such as cruise missiles, maximize the ability of NATO to attack the deep echelon Soviet forces before they arrive at the line of contact with NATO forces. That, again, is the reason for the change in military thinking of the Soviets. They want to be able to deploy their troops rapidly. He says it would be easier for Moscow to dispatch fresh troops to the European front than it would be for Washington to airlift reinforcements based in the States. Soviets still seek to undermine the cohesion of the NATO alliance, and in particular, U.S. relations with its NATO allies. Much of Europe has gone gaga to Gorbachev. So you see what's happening. You know, you know, Russia is not letting down. The, a major force, and I don't want you to ever forget that, a major force to help in the southern... Remember Abraham? The Ten Kings? He was confederate with those kings in the south. I want you to keep that in mind as we, as we, well, I think I got a couple of minutes. I'm, uh, uh, I know, two minutes. 
Okay, back to back to uh, Mr. Ramati. He says the central objective here is to maintain the Egyptian commitment to the International Conference on the Middle East and the continuation of cooperation between Egypt and the PLO. To the Soviet Union, this international conference is the key to the creation of conditions that may, that may make it a dominant power in the Middle East, a weak Israel unable to play a role in solving the strategic problems of Turkey. USSR, and I'll, I'll summarize this, wants to force Israel to negotiate. We might also add that the United States wants to force Israel to negotiate. Moreover, uh, Damascus has been told firmly that a war with Israel at this juncture will receive no Soviet support. USSR has, re has no reason to accept this kind of risk while everything in the Middle East is moving in the direction it desires. It's very clear, right? In other words, they told Syria, you don't fight Israel because they have that plan. But brothers and sisters, who has the real plan? God. Our Father. I mean, it's all on his schedule. We stand here, 1989, and this is, remember, Sunday, one thing we wanted to talk about was, particularly to the young people, no reason to feel you know, sad or unhappy that our Lord didn't come in 88, which was a high day of thought. There's so much happened since then that this should make us that much more aware and thrilled. Plus, you know, we have something else. Each of us have more time, and we need time. With the, with the problems and individually and collectively that all of us have, we need time. The Lord by his plan has allowed us time. Let's use it wisely. Let's be very conscious that things are moving suddenly and swiftly now. 92 could be an outside date. Before 92, Turkey could fall and you and I could be at the judgment seat. And that's what's important to us. All of knowing where we are doesn't amount to a hill of beans if we don't prepare ourselves and are ready for his calling. That's his calling to you and I to come to judgment. Because that's a sure day fixed in the minds of each of us. 